filibuster receives sponsorship from the Ehrlich Law Office, discrimination, wage, and litigation solutions serving Northern Virginia and the District of Columbia. They handle employment issues, including wrongful termination, wage disputes, discrimination, equal employment opportunity matters, and more. They also handle civil rights litigation, defamation, and general litigation. For a free consultation, visit EhrlichLawOffice.com slash filibuster. Alright guys, it's been a week. What do we think of the logo now? It's been a week. We've been able to sleep on it. We've seen it on officially revealed. We've seen it on a jersey, we think. We've seen it on other merchandise. What do we think of the new DC United logo? Double plus good. I'm Jason? comfortable as uh, as the the resident uh, DC United old timer. Um I, I'm I'm ex- I accept it, which uh, given given the stakes and given the past, uh, just totally total opposition to change that that comes with being a DC United old timer. I think accepting it uh, without complaint is pretty good. Um, it really isn't a big change, so that that helps quite a bit. Um, yeah, and I think seeing it on on merchandise helped me a lot, especially <laughs> like seeing it like. The, the especially on the jersey tees. Yeah, and the jersey tees and the the one I think it's called Mitchell and Ness that yes. has the, the championship years on the back. That shirt is just such hot fire. And I've told like every one in my family I'm fully expecting six of those for Christmas because <laughs> that is the only thing I've asked for from family members. <laughs> one uh, for every day of the week. Yeah, basically, I will just wear that under my my dress shirts every day at work, and it's a black long sleeve t shirt, <laughs> and my I, I have one dark colored dress shirt, so four days a week at least it will just be showing through under my dress shirt, and I am happy with that. I'm okay with that because that shirt is so the hot fire. It is everything. I, I will say I think I I think I figured out my issue with the font, um, which is that. On my old indoor team, uh, I was supposed to take care of getting the jerseys made, which was good because I had come up with the name and the aesthetic of the whole thing. Um, but somebody decided I was taking too long. Um, and so, like, a month before we were going to play. Um, so there's still plenty of time. But uh, he went and got jerseys made on his own and just came back and said, everyone give me X amount of money. And he got... Pretty much that font. It's not the same, but it's very similar. It's the off-the-shelf version of that font. Yeah, um, he got that font. Um, I think it was a Star Trek-related font oh. on the back of these jerseys, and uh, we were stuck with them because they were already done. And he was holding them and asking us for money. Um, and I was very upset with with the outcome because it was not how I wanted the jerseys to look. Um, but obviously, I never did anything about it because when I brought up getting new jerseys a couple seasons later, everyone was like, "Well, the ones we have haven't fallen apart yet," and that was the end of it. Um, so it might the font thing might just be my frustration at being uh, the victim of impatience. I'm a very important uh, indoor soccer team jersey font. Hey, hey, welcome in. This is filibuster the indoor soccer jersey and black and red united podcast i am adam taylor joined as always by 
Jason Anderson and Ben Bromley. We are all from blackandredunited.com. That's where you can find us writing about DC United, MLS, the U.S. national teams, and, and lots more in the world of soccer. We've got a grab bag episode for you tonight. We're not going to run down what we're going to talk about because there's a lot of it, and we're just going to kind of willy-nilly, loosey-goosey, freeform our way through the show. Before we do anything, though, before we do anything, though, I will impose a little bit of structure on this and ask Ben, what are you drinking? So I got home uh, from a friend's birthday dinner uh, right before we were supposed to start recording. Uh, and so I and just that's th- why you're wearing a toga? And that's why I'm wearing a toga and uh, crown of olives branches. Sure. No, that's why I'm still wearing a so I'm still wearing a dress shirt and actual slacks instead of my normal podcasting uniform. Uh, and so I just which is nothing at all. We all know. We all know that. Then <laughs> be glad. Be glad this is radio, fam. Uh, so I am. I, um, I just threw some whiskey in a glass and put some ice in it. That is completely fair. Yeah. Jason, what are you drinking? Uh, so I I've already, I should preface this by saying I had two uh, Yingling Black and Tans before or with with and after dinner, um, and then finished one just so I could pour a a better beer for the show. Um. I have uh, Heavy Seas, uh, their Winter Ale, uh, what is it, uh, Winter Storm, which is an Imperial ESB. Um, Can you bring uh, one of those to me? Because that sounds wonderful. Uh, I don't think I can, I can have one. They, they're, they're out there. If you find Heavy Seas, it's probably going to be in there right now. So if you find that. But if in between the next few times you get beer and I see you, just let me know and I can bring you one. Awesome. I love asking for beer on the podcast. Um, I am making this the second week in a row that somebody on the show is drinking uh, Stone out of San Diego, almost out of Richmond. Ben, before you bring it up, we know they're coming to Richmond. They're opening next year. We we know they're not coming. They're here. It's ha- their brewery is half built. Well, they're on not the way, there on then. The, on the way to being completely built. That sounds like they're coming. They're not there yet. Their construction workers are there, but the beer is not there yet. The brewers are not there yet. They've made more progress than the DC United Stadium. Way to kill the show, dude. <laughs> Don't kill the show, dude. The stadium's going to happen, too. I am drinking uh, Stone's Vertical Epic Ale, which is part of their 20th anniversary Encore series. They are taking a bunch of their fan-favorite beers, essentially, over their 20 years of existence and uh, rebrewing them and, and reselling them. This is uh, a Belgian-style triple from 2008, and I wasn't paying attention. I don't normally buy and drink, you know, 22 ounces of triple because damn, but uh, I, I wasn't paying attention to the name and didn't really read the label when I grabbed it out of the fridge, and I just... I should have known better with Epic Ale that it was going to be something big. And uh, hang on, folks, because this is going to be a fun show. Let's turn our attention now to Major League Soccer. Why not? Um, we've got quite a bit of MLS come out since the Portland Timbers won MLS Cup. Uh, we'll start with 
the Portland Timbers. The champs have made a couple changes at left back, which normally wouldn't seem like a big deal, but when you sell your starting left back to a team in Liga MX for uh, seven figures, as the Timbers just did with Jorge Villafania, and trade for a replacement right away in the form of Chris Clutie from the Columbus crew, you're going you're gonna to make some headlines. Jason, what do you make of, of these two moves? Well, for, first, I mean, what I've heard is that it's almost seven figures um, rather than above. Um, and that actually brings me to my main problem with it. Isn't that it's not that Portland shouldn't have sold, it's that they sold too low. I think Viafania has shown um, too much quality as a defender as that can actually contribute to an attack um, for him to go for that kind of price. I mean, when you say almost uh, seven figures, you're not too far from what United got for Troy Perkins years ago going to Scandinavia. Um, and Viafania at this point in his career is a much more valuable player than Perkins was at that time. Um, not to mention, you know, it's been several years, so, you know, prices are going to go up anyway. Um, I think it was a good idea for them to do it because when you have an offer coming in um, and you're in their situation where you've got to hand out a lot of performance raises that people earned, um, you do have to make some moves and you shouldn't break up the spine of your team. So all of that is very good. I just think they needed to get more out of that transfer financially. Um, I think they need to be up around like 1.5 million rather than short of a million. Even if it's a dollar short, it's still quite a bit short percentage-wise. Um, and they're a team that hasn't produced a bunch of talent from their academy. So investments in, into the youth system, into identifying young players to bring in, maybe identifying ways to game the system and get young players from outside of their region into their academy would make sense for the Timbers right now because they are they're a team that's kind of dependent on outside transfers in a big right. way. Well, they're, they're depending on that and on the Timbers 2 USL team to give them young players, maybe not academy players, but young players. Um, I, I think uh, it's been brought up more than once that they, they have a draft pick from last year named Carlton Belmar, who did really well in USL this, this past season and may may have earned himself a roster spot for the, the full Timbers next season. And that's kind of what they're going for. But he's not a... Portland kid, as far as I know, he's certainly not a Timbers Academy product or a Timbers affiliate Academy product. He's a guy they drafted like anyone else. Um, and so that's what they have to do. Um, as far as uh, Clutie goes, it's it's a move that makes, that move makes a lot of sense. Um, I really don't understand the last two seasons for him. He was a very good left back and then all of a sudden was being used as a right back, which doesn't seem to suit him. Um, Columbus brought him brought him over, but they already had, um, at the time, they already had um, Waylon Francis in place and um, uh, Hernan Grana, who was there for a little while in the spring. Um, he was there. He was a big, you know, off-season transfer that they brought in to be there starting right back. So he was brought in, but immediately turned into fullback depth. Um, and then, on top of that, when the crew used him, it was more often than not as a right back rather than as a left back. Um, I really don't get it because I think it's abundantly clear he's a much better left back than right back. But um, Portland, I, I don't think they're going to spend too much time concerned with that crazy decision by multiple teams. 
um, they're going to say, look, here's a left back. We're going to play him at left back, and look what happens. And it's probably going to work out pretty well because the guy can play. Um, he can contribute a lot. He might not be as good one-on-one as Diafano, um, but his crossing is very good. Uh, he's overall, he's fit. He's He's got decent speed. Um, there's not a lot wrong with his game, provided he's played on the correct side. Um, and that appears to be the plan for Portland. So as much as I have to be down on them for maybe getting only, you know, 60% of Diafano's value, 60, 70% somewhere in there, uh, they have filled that gap in their lineup very quickly and very intelligently. So it's not all bad. Um, it's it's really just the price tag that I would object to. Another hole the Timbers may have to to fill is the really the first forward off the bench for them because Maximiliano Ruti, one of the most fun names to say in all of Major League Soccer, Max Ruti went to Dallas in the first stage of the re-entry draft this year, one of only two selections. The other one is a guy you've never heard of, so I'm not even going to go into it. Um, He's a goalkeeper from Chicago. Whom you've never heard of. <laughs> I have heard of. I mean, we've all heard of him, but we're, we're the nerds. Yeah, even the nerds listening to our show, and if you're listening to a soccer podcast, I'm sorry, especially this soccer podcast, you're probably a nerd. Just own it, guys. And girls. Um... But but Dallas took a Ruti in the first round. They traded up to get him. Um, ben, how scary is Dallas's front four for next year with a Ruti taking the place of Teixeira? I mean, yeah, it's going to be ridiculous. Uh, and it's also ridiculous that they were in the position to be able to get him. I was thinking about it recently, and I think this might be like the last last vestiges of Kevin Payne's influence on Major League Soccer because I believe it was him signing Ruti to this deal that had this ridiculous, supposedly ridiculous option in Toronto that got traded to Portland and now is in effect that made all of this happen. So I guess Oscar Pereja can thank Kevin Payne. But yeah, it's it, Oscar Pereja is a great MLS coach and having... Max Rudy in his system to help uh, and to help him getting uh, more development from Pareja is going to be great for him and it's going to be bad for the rest of the league. So, yeah. Dallas, of course, was a 3-1 to loss at Portland in a 2-2 to draw at home away from MLS Cup this year and they suddenly find themselves with a bunch of cap space which is how they're able to afford Max Arruti because they let go of Blas Perez, they let go of uh, David Teixeira, they made a couple other moves, and um, they just have a ton of cap space all of a sudden. Um, and so they can go out and sign a guy like Max Arruti. It's, it'll be interesting to see how they they work without a, a hold-up striker, because Teixeira was really effective in the build-up play for them. Didn't score a bunch of goals. He scored in the playoffs, and, and more power to him. I think he'll land somewhere. Um, if not in MLS, then then some, he, he, he'll... He's still got, you know, some good soccer in him, I think. But it will be interesting to see if Dallas has to change their style some next year because Arudi is not a guy who's going to do a lot of the, the hold-up work that Blas Perez or, or Teixeira provided. Jason, yeah, anything I, to add? I, I would say that with, with Arudi, the, the object is probably going to be for him to check check hard to the ball and take one or two touches Um I think that's the way he's got to make it work because he's not going to have the strength to play back to goal. 
and that's sort of what uh, they had in place, not with Perez, but with um, Tishera. I think that was the the way he had to play as well, though he was maybe a little more able to play back to goal. Um, Rudy's not really going to be able to get, a, get away with that, which means they've got to find a way to get their uh, three attacking midfielders closer to him so that when he makes that, that quick drop pass, it's not a 10-yard, 15-yard pass. It's, it's you know more like under 10 yards because then it's an easier pass for him to make, and then he makes the run, and before the defense can really even track that run, the return pass is already coming. That's really the idea. Um, and actually, United fans might have gotten a little bit of a sample of how that's supposed to work in the final game of the season against Columbus uh, with um, Jack McInerney and um, Federico Iguain, where McInerney just always avoided contact. He was always moving away from the center backs before they could do anything about it. And he wasn't keeping the ball. It was just one and two touch and then make your run. Um, and I think that's the kind of idea that Dallas will go forward with. Um, the knock on Arudi has always been that he wants to shoot. He does not want to pass. He doesn't want to do much of anything involving any other players on the team. He just wants you to pass him the ball so he can shoot. Um, but he did get better as this season went on at, sharing the ball a little more and understanding that, you know, connecting a pass from every, every now and again might give you a better chance to shoot in a, in a little while. You just have to be slightly patient. Um, now, if Pereja can continue that development, if he can convince him to buy into the fact that he, he shouldn't just be looking to score, he should be looking to contribute a little more to the team, then I think they're going to be a really, really difficult team to stop going forward. It's it, adding him makes him more clever off the ball. It makes him a little faster, I think. I think he's got a little more speed than Tishira did. Um, but it, a lot of it depends on whether he's going to um, get that or whether he's going to revert to some old habits. You know, sometimes players do that when they transfer. They, um, they're in an unfamiliar environment, and they sort of forget what, what gave them the chance to earn that transfer, and they start um, falling back on bad habits and... Freyhouse probably won't let that happen. Um, he's proven extremely good at uh, getting players to do what they're supposed to be doing for his system, but you never know. Um, and it is, uh, I think it is a smart move. I do think they're still going to need, and you know, we've talked about how they've gotten rid of two strikers. They need to add another striker. Um, or no, they still need to go get one more. Um, and whether that is another player in MLS, if that's... Um, you know, if they decide that Tesho Akindele can play that role full-time rather than being a sort of uh, jack-of-all-trades attacker, um, that's an interesting problem for them to solve because if they can get him to become a forward, then they've sort of saved themselves some money because if he's playing as, a, as the other striker, then they just have to go find one more winger. And wingers, you know, effective wingers are by definition cheaper than uh, effective strikers. So that might be the plan, but, you know, I think Pereja has shown some flexibility, so if that doesn't work, if they have to stick with Akindele as a, um attacking player rather than as a pure forward, then I think they'll have somebody else in mind to come in and beat the other forward. And it, I, I think we're going to see FC Dallas being a strong team for a good while now, even if they sell Fabian Castillo. Um, if they get the money that's, that's being talked about, it wouldn't sh- surprise me at all if they then turn around and use that money to go get somebody else that they've had their eye on, but they just couldn't afford. Uh, they just seem really prepared right now. It's um, generally been 
a good habit to not bet against Oscar Pereja in his time as an MLS coach. And this seems like one of those. He's set up to succeed right now at Dallas. Whatever and, happens, it seems like. And so many of his players are young as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did a great job of transitioning from you know, having a team where Blas Perez was a starter and Michel was a starter. Um, now Perez has been let go. Um, and has said he's he's not he's not like hanging in the wind waiting for an offer. He's being told to move on. Um, Michel has been let go. He's he already was effectively run out of the team by Calan Acosta um, and um, Ezekiel Sergliano, Speaking of guys with awesome names that are now playing for FC Dallas, um, so he's been really good about not just replacing his veterans with younger players, but like really younger like guys that are going to be that could be there for ten years or fetch a transfer fee. Um, so they're they're lined up uh, to be strong for a very long. But like they don't have any starters that are old. Um, like Matt Hedges is their old starter, or Javon Watson, I guess, is thirty-two. So I guess that's it. They've got one starter who is above like twenty-seven, um, which is an absurd thing in MLS. But uh, that's the game that Breha wanted to play and. It took a little while to get there, but now it's really coming to the fore, and that's also why they could afford to um, make moves elsewhere because they've they've already saved themselves money in the process of getting younger. They've also saved themselves a lot of money. So um, it sucks if you're a Western Conference team right now because like for the foreseeable future, you're going to be having the FC Dallas to get through if you want to win that conference. It looks like both conferences could be expanding, well, will be expanding soon. Uh, We know the league is going to be at 24 teams sooner than later. For those of you keeping score at home, they're currently at 20 teams in MLS, two 10-team conferences. We know that now that Atlanta and Minnesota are tabbed to come in after next season, before 2017, followed by Miami and LAFC the, the following year. Now that Miami seems to have a stadium plan, on track. We'll see if that actually holds or not, or whether Sacramento will have to jump the queue to to come in in 2018. But it looks like that much is set. We're going to be at 24 teams in the next two or three years. MLS's Board of Governors has said that they're going to go to 28 eventually, or they want to explore going as high as 28, I guess, is the the broadest way to read the their vote. They could only go to 27, they could go all the way to 28, and then decide to keep going. Ben, it seems like every time we get to a milestone, the speculation is, you know, we're going to get to 20 teams, and we're going to stay there for a little while and reevaluate. Well, no, it looks pretty good. We're going to go to 24 teams. We're going to stay there and reevaluate. Well, you know, we've got Sacramento wanting to come in, and we don't really want to just bring one team in and go to 25. Who has 25 teams? Let's go to 28 and now people are saying, well, they're going to get to 28, and then they're going to stop and reevaluate. Is there any reason to think they're actually going to stop and reevaluate at 28? The only reason would be they may eventually be running up a, uh, to the number of ownership groups in big American cities that are actually willing to pay their entrance fee. I mean, once you get to 28 teams... capable of running a, a team right. at this level. Right. Uh, so... Once you get to 28 for soccer, I think that's getting pretty... Well, I'll only say I hope that's getting pretty close to the total number. I think I would have preferred them to stay at 24, I think, for a a while longer. 
Uh, but with those big checks coming in, they're not. Uh, but 28 yeah, is okay. As as- I, if they if they start pushing 30 and 32, that's that that's too many teams for this league. Yeah, I think I think as as far as MLS goes, it's going to be a situation of as long as there's a viable ownership group with a stadium plan. And I don't think that there are any other markets that are going to force their way in without a stadium plan the way New York and Miami kind of have. Right. Like St. Louis is not going to be coming into MLS until they have an ownership group and a stadium plan, which they have neither of right now. Exactly. Um, And honestly, of the two, the ownership group is the more important for them because they have... They've never had one. But yeah, exactly. Everyone wants St. Louis to come in. They've just never had an ownership group that could pony up the cash and actually run a team that an MLS team requires. They haven't even been able to keep a USL team going for more than like two years at a time. So an MLS team seems impossible at this point. Unless there's somebody who just like pops up and has billions of dollars and is like, I'm going to do this. Right. I think the biggest reason they haven't stopped at 20 teams to reevaluate and they're not going to stop at 24 teams to reevaluate is there's always the next market that's kind of forcing itself into the picture. Um, They got to 20 teams and there was already, you know, three of these four that are coming in that were basically knocking the door down and then Minnesota joined them and they might actually be further along now than the other three that are coming in in this next class of expansion teams. And then right around the corner, you have Sacramento, who is basically giving MLS no choice but to keep going past 24. And I guess they just decided, let's say 28 is the number. I think it would be interesting to see a three-division 27-team league. I think that ends up working very nicely uh, for scheduling purposes, which I think... fortunately or not, is way down the list of concerns when admitting a new team to MLS. Scheduling concerns are just, and and competitive concerns, are not really a consideration. It's, can this team come into the league and be successful as a draw at the gate? Can it compete on the field? Um, Does it have a stadium? You know, does it help the footprint and the TV ratings because those are those are the real concerns as far as MLS goes uh, for better or worse. I mean, you can't blame them. They it is a business, but at the same time, you want to see uh, something that resembles a soccer league at the end of it. Shall we talk about? I was just going to bring up the fact that Argentina's first division has like thirty teams, so it could get more chaotic. Um, though. Once you get into comedy ball league structure, uh, it all starts to get a little crazy. I mean, Brazil for the longest time didn't outright have a, a full time first division. Um, so basically, Argentina just restructured like a few years ago. They restructured to this this thirty team format. Um, right. So I mean, it it could get more crazy rather than less crazy. Um, I. At a certain point, I think, and, and it's going to be, there are going to be more teams than are necessary um, at a certain point. And that's there just aren't the going rule to... in American pro sports. Well, well, only, and only college one, sports, for that matter. Only one team is necessary. Um, no, if we're gonna, we have to have somebody to beat. Okay. If we're, go, if we're going to talk about college sports, I would like to propose my, my um, college football 
bowl plan, which is that if you have fewer than seven wins and your team loses your bowl game, you don't get to have college football anymore. Your your school is out of football. Um, so you have to think twice before you accept the bowls so that we don't have the uh, Beef O'Brady, Chick-fil-A, um, filibuster.com bowl, um, which we're sponsoring this year, because why not? Everyone else has one. Um, you know how many <laughs> listeners we could get if we sponsored a bowl game? Six. That is the answer, six. <laughs> exactly. It's a touchdown without the extra point. That is how many listeners we would get from that. I think we should not spend our money. That We don't have a budget, what, number what one. What money are you talking about? There is no money. If we, if we spend our own money on, like, line for a field and just line it correctly and have some guys dressed as referees, we could probably get two six and five college teams to come play football in front of us. Um and get, like, ESPN will televise it on, uh, like, 8 p.m. on a Thursday night in December because or January because that's what happens. Uh, and it would probably do the same ratings as MLS Cup. It'd probably do better, sadly. As, as far as English language goes. I think I think right. if you count in the Spanish language, MLS Cup would draw better. But... Yes. But anyway, the point I was going to there are just... There's not. There are going to be too many teams, uh, but also too few in that you can't do. You can't steal the J League's idea and have a J League one and J League two. Um, MLS can't isn't going to have that because you need like 40 teams at that point. Um, and the only certain, way that happens is if NASL gets their act together enough to force MLS to <laughs> merge, which NASL has shown no inclination of being competent enough to do that. Unfortunately, because they have some good owners. They do have some good owners in that league. It's just the league itself is such a screw-up. It's really disheartening, because I want them to do well. Correctly run, this would be much easier, but the fact is that the the, the brains of that league is are... Uh, I don't even know where to begin with those guys. Um, they're, they're just a mess, and it's not the fault of the clubs. In many cases, it's the fault of the NASL as a league. Um, but, you know, that's the pipe dream. For me, at least, I think that would be pretty cool. I, I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, or if it does, it'll be like 30 years from now. Uh, it's going to take a very long time. So we, we're just going to have an awkwardly shaped league. But on the other hand, I'm extremely used to MLS just being an awkwardly shaped league because it's been that almost all of its existence. There was a two-year period there where everything made sense where you just played everyone twice, and that was it, and it was good and fun, and now we don't have that, and we'll never have it again. Uh, so that's, No, and I think that's actually appropriate. When you have a country the size of a continent, it's really, really difficult to actually um, do a, a proper, balanced, double-round-robin schedule. It just doesn't work as right. well as it does in a state that's smaller, or in a country that's smaller than California or a country that's smaller than New York. It, it Sadly, we it's not something that's in the cards. If we had really small regional leagues, like if there were 20 teams in the Northeast Corridor between here and Boston, then we could do a double round robin league. But we don't have that, and we're never going to. So instead, let's talk about TAM. Because this is something that uh, MLS does that no other league in the world does, and it's hard to explain why. The unbalanced schedule is easy to explain why, and it's easy to understand at least the arguments for it. I, I understand the arguments against it, but it's easy to explain the arguments for it as well. Targeted allocation money is harder to explain 
<laughs> MLS introduced the concept last year, giving teams, I think, $500,000 of TAM over five years. It would kind of expire on a rolling basis. You could use it all at once, but every year over the five years, 100000 of it would disappear if you didn't use it. Now the league has supplemented that original half a million dollars with two segments of $800,000 each to be used over the next two years um, for every team in the league. This helps teams like LA and Seattle who have basically already spent this money on acquisitions like uh, Gio Dos Santos or, or Seattle's myriad guys, Ivan Schitz and, and whoever else they, they acquired this past summer. But for the rest of the league, it's basically a million and a half dollars plus that they need to use over these next two years. Which means DC United needs to spend $1.6 million in salary over the next two years. Ben, what do you make of this development? Um, I mean, they're def- they're, they have and will trade some of it to probably get some MLS veterans that is their way and their want. But we also know that Dave Casper is scouting right now. He's in, he has been in South America, I believe Argentina, and he's also going to France to specifically scout, uh, not necessarily French players, but the French leagues. And so with a little extra cash in his pocket, he may be able to upgrade from the kind of international signings that DC United normally is able to pay for and give find an international signing at a higher price point that might be able to contribute in a way that we're not used to DC United international signings contributing. So we'll see like the, the, the uh, chatter out of DC United has been fairly decent. Ben Olsen has been saying that they're going to sign a couple of players before next year. And I mean, that's kind of basically the bare minimum. They, they, have to sign some more players to keep getting better in a league that everybody's getting better every year. So we'll see what happens over the course of the offseason, of course, but I'm given United's past and recent past history, I'm hesitant about them actually using this. Jason, what do you make of the development of lots and lots more TAM to go along with GAM general allocation money as it must now be called. No, I, I refuse that. GAM is Eddie Johnson. Well, now Eddie Johnson has been commoditized and he is Garberbucks. He is Garberbucks. This is, this is a town that is full of acronyms. Um, is, that what, is that what happens to... Find another acronym. Is that There's what happens... Is that what happens to MLS players when they retire? They just get churned into uh, allocation money? Race like horses, horses get like churned horses. into glue. Right. MLS players get turned into Monopoly money. That's how it works. Um, Jason, what do you make of this development, though, that, that the league is basically putting lots of money into players? $37 million, essentially, when you combine this TAM with the, the homegrown player fund, which each team gets what, $150,000 a year now or $125,000 a year to, to sign homegrown players, which is about the fourth change in how homegrown players work. But that aside, this is more money for players that is outside of the salary cap. 
which some people are saying means the players didn't get enough when they went through the CBA before this past season. I take the opposite view. I think the players' number one concern was some form of free agency just to basically get the camel's nose under the tent of free agency, and they can, they can build on that next time. And salary concerns were almost secondary. They wanted to push, push the envelope on that, but first and foremost was getting some kind of free agency, and they were willing to give up some salary to get there which was music to the ears of you know, the Crafts and the Hunts who, who, wanted, uh, who wanted lower salaries going forward and the lower salary cap because they are the old school, the old guard of, of owners that, that want to control player costs more than anything else. With free agency, the players gave up some salary, but the newer owners, the more moneyed owners, I guess, the, more, the, the owners who really want to compete in this league are finding ways to pour money into player salaries, even if it is outside of the cap. And so the players are getting the salary. They're getting the raises, even if it's directed at a certain segment of the roster higher up the depth chart than I would prefer the money go. The money is still going to the players in some form or another. What do you make of this, this whole weird really specific to MLS dynamic that's developed? Um, I think the money's going to end up going to players that are not in the league um, in a lot of cases. Um, I think it, it allows MLS to pursue uh, free agents that weren't really cost-feasible before, or at least more of them. Um, you know, For every guy that you could sign if you're paying you know, 750000 a year, um, that you know the number of guys that MLS can go get now maybe maybe is uh well not maybe is bigger. Um, I don't know that there are going to be that many instances where the league where teams opt to go to their roster their existing roster and pay it um, towards that. Um, United might have to do that with Perry Kitchen. Um, in fact, to to give him a salary that that is going to keep him, they're almost certainly going to have to do that. Um, whether they want to is a different thing. Whether they think that's a fair valuation is is a different determination altogether. But um, it is good overall for the league. It should result in higher quality players. I think um, it's not rocket science to figure that if you have more money for salaries, that better players will end up in your league unless you are just completely mismanaging everything. Um, and for every team like the Colorado Rapids, uh, there are some teams that aren't going to mismanage it and will end up signing players who have, are worth the money. Um, so it should boost the quality of play on the field. Um, I suspect that most teams will go after attacking players. I think a few will think of, they'll take the example of Portland and, and look for, they won't be able to sign Liam Ridgewell directly. They won't, you know, a guy with that's coming from the Premier League that's going to make seven figures. Um, but they might be able to sign somebody who is a starting defender in the French League, for example. Or um, they could pay down a guy who's making $900,000 and then sign someone from the Premier League. Right. Um, the, you know, it, it frees up teams to add to the top of their roster, um, which I think we can all agree would be nice. Uh, for United, looking at the um, the attacking talent on the team is is a lot of guys that were picked up from within MLS that 
you know, Fabian Espindola played himself into a low-end designated player deal. Um, when you look around the rest of it, I mean, even a team like Chicago um, has a bunch of, they've spent more money on their attack than United did. Um, you could argue that in better hands, their attack may have actually been good enough to take them somewhere this year, uh, if not they're just such a mess at everything else um, because there was talent there and it was just mismanaged talent. Um, I would certainly enjoy seeing a David Akam equivalent uh, suiting up for DC. Uh, I think that would be pretty excellent, uh, no matter if he's a forward or a winger. Um, but it allows you to improve in those departments, and, and that's always going to be positive. It's not great for the the existing players, the guys that have been in the league forever, because that money's not, in all likelihood, is not going to fall to many of them. Um, but like you said, Adam, they decided that the hill that they were going to die on was free agency and not on salaries, and they got free agency. Justin Mapp today um, was the first ever MLS free agent, which is a, just a weird thing to even say because plenty of free agents have been signing MLS because that's who they can afford often. But we're talking about a guy that was within MLS and then transferred to another MLS team without signing anywhere else. Um, so uh, they got what they wanted, um, which, it, you know, you can argue whether they should have really been, that should have been their priority or not, but they had decided years ago that that was the priority. And um, you can't help but say, you know, you got what you wanted. And the owners are showing some knowledge that they do need to accelerate the quality of play if they want to uh, achieve the, um, what is it, top, 10 league in 2020. Just, just a league of choice. It's an extremely vague uh, thing, but it's something that you can, you can say, no matter how vague it is, you can say it's not in place now, and they've only got, you know, it's almost, you know, six years away that they need to be, it's just six, six years and a couple of weeks before they have to start being able to make their argument for themselves, so they have to accelerate something. Well, I think a lot of the owners, too, and, 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 and I think Don Garber, wherever the league is, if they're not the top league in the world, they're, they're going to have aspirations. This is a very aspirational league. It's very American in that sense, that it wants to be more than it is. And that's going to require money. And there are some owners who just want to protect their investment and cut costs and, and increase revenue, and I'm not going to name any names when talking about that. But... A, I think there are other owners who realize that there's a higher equilib- equilibrium where they can break even and turn a profit if they invest more into it and get higher revenues that way. So uh, I think that's what you're seeing is is kind of the advent of whatever that noise was and those owners. Jasper again wants to be on the podcast. <laughs> Second week in a row, man. He didn't vocalize this time, though. He, he just yet. gave us some percussion. Yep. That was a demand for some Tam. <laughs> Tam for Jasper. Hashtag Tam for Jasper. Jasper was also given $800,000 in Tam to spend as he pleases. Ben, you are entirely too generous a cat owner. Are you a pleaser? <laughs> And on that note, I mean, we're gonna. And that note, we can't beat that joke. We're gonna take a quick break. Stick around. This is filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. Hey Ben, you know how you're always going on and on about legal advice on this show? Well, and, yeah. And, not, and you never ever use the term correctly. Well, of course not. I try not to use the term correctly. 
Right. Our new sponsors, the Ehrlich Law Office, they do use the term correctly all the time. In fact, that is what they do. Oh, so if I actually wanted legal advice, I should probably go to them? Yeah, exactly. If you're in Northern Virginia or the District of Columbia, they handle employment issues, general civil litigation, defamation, lots of stuff. Uh, they have you covered. Jason, I'm sorry, they do not have you covered because you are in Maryland where they are not operating just yet. Uh, fine. So Ehrlich Law Office, it's, a, it's really good people. Uh, Josh is their, their main proprietor, Josh Ehrlich. Uh, he's a law school friend of mine. His, one of their, their attorneys, Ben, uh, a lot of our listeners know him from games and, and other places. So, guys, for a free consultation, go to ehrlichlawoffice.com slash filibuster. Welcome back to Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. We're going to quickly now talk uh, some national team soccer. The United States Soccer Federation announced their nominees for male and female player of the year this year. Um, and as you might expect, the lists of nominees are somewhat reflective of the years the respective men's and women's programs had in 2015. Uh we will start with the lesser of the two seasons, uh, which would be the men, whose list of finalists includes Michael Bradley, Clint Dempsey, Fabian Johnson, Brad Guzan, and DeAndre Yedlin. None of which can be said to have had a stellar 2015, which is my point here, yeah. I think. Um, I think of the bunch, Fabian Johnson in the last month has had the best actually honestly in the best in the last month he has had the best year of any of them Michael Bradley was on a team that barely made the MLS Cup playoffs Clint Dempsey had a good he had a decent year he was fine he he had a, a Dempsey kind of a, a down year for Dempsey which is a good year for many many players Fabian Johnson is scoring and assisting in the Champions League. Brad Guzan is on the, the worst team in the Premier League, and DeAndre Edlin, I think plays he's for playing, Sunderland. I think he's I think he plays for Sunderland. He doesn't play for Spurs. He's on loan with Sunderland and I he assume plays, he, he I think plays, he's actually getting minutes with he's Sunderland. Getting more minutes now. Yeah. He did miss. I think he recently got yanked uh early in a game though, so it might be it might dry up in the next couple weeks. Yeah, the fact that a guy who a guy who who is a sometimes starter for Sunderland, the fact that he's in the top five for this tells you what kind of year it's been for the U.S. men's national team. And we're not going to pick a winner. I'm not going to ask you guys who should win this because I don't care. That's the thing: is it's been a bad year and they should feel bad, and that's the end of it. The actual interesting conversation is on the women's side, where the the, the finalists for the female player of the year include Lauren Holiday, Carly Lloyd, Megan Rapino, Becky Sauerbronn, and Hope Solo. We all know Carly Lloyd is going to win, but it's an actual interesting conversation to discuss who should win. Yeah, I mean, this. not really. It should be Becky Sauerbrunn. It, it should be Becky Sauerbrunn. And, and you know this and I know this, Ben, but you should tell our listeners why it should be Becky Sauerbrunn because she doesn't get the accolades of a Carly Lloyd or a Pino or even a Hope Solo or, oh, yeah. or Lauren Holloway. She's probably the least well-known of these five finalists, of course but she why is. should she win? 
Well, I mean, it's obviously because central defense is one of the least sexy positions in soccer, and you only really get noticed when you screw up, not when you do good things. But she had an amazing year. She was much, well, maybe not much better, but she was clearly better than Julie Johnston at the World Cup, and Julie Johnston got all the praised and accolades for her performance at center back. But Julie Becky Johnston was still really good. Of course she was, but Becky Sauerbrunn was clearly better. Uh, and in one of the, I think it was in one of the recent uh, victory tour uh, friendlies where she just had a ridiculous clearance off the line that even she didn't know how she performed. And she won uh, Defender of the Year in uh, NWSL. Her team won NWSL, I For believe. For the second straight year. Yeah. Yeah, and so just overall, she's had combining club and country, which is what the award does do, and that was confirmed today, does include both club and country. She's had, I I think it's fairly clear, the best whole year performance of any uh, uh, USWNT player. Uh, Obviously, a lot of people are going to vote for the hat trick, and the hat trick was amazing, but it... And what the ha- fact that it was not in the top three of the Puskas Awards is stupid, and FIFA yes, that's, is stupid, that's and should feel stupid. Obviously, obviously. But that does not equal a whole season. Yeah, no, I'm completely with you. It should be it should be Sauerbrunn winning this award, and if it were filibuster voting, she would win this award hands down. I think one of the reasons Julie Johnson looked so good at the World Cup was because Becky Sauerbrunn was next to her, helping to organize that back line and, and making it... Emergency defending is never easy, but it's easier when you have someone as as smart and as as wonderful as, as Sauerbrunn has been. And, and that showed in the World Cup where I think it was Stars and Stripes FC who made this same argument, and they're, they're our sister site on SB Nation. They pointed out that Basically, nobody ever got a shot on goal off against the U.S. women's national team at the World Cup. Germany got one or two shots on goal, which is the most the U.S. faced in the World Cup. Nobody ever got more than two shots on goal in the entire World Cup. But we, we shouldn't discount the fact that Australia probably should have been up 2 nothing against the U.S. in the opening game. Um, a game that the U.S. won, I think, 3-1? to one? Yes. Once the Australians tired, uh, the U.S. basically turned their three half-decent looks into goals. Um, but, uh, I think part of the reason Johnson got more credit is the fact that she was also the less sure starter. Everyone knew Sauerbrunn was going to start and play well. There was no surprise to see her being excellent because that's what she's done. Um, Johnston was someone that, you know, as of a few months before the World Cup was on the fringes of the of the team, um, and rose very quickly. And she was an attacking midfielder in college. Um, so it's been a transition back um, to defensive midfield and then to center back. Um, there's still some talk as to whether she's actually better as a midfielder than a center back. But um, the combination... She is the Jeff Cameron of the women's program. A little bit, yeah. Um, and, you know, the combination of that and the fact that she did make more dramatic plays, um, and for a lot of people, that's what you're going to notice and remember because it's difficult to really appreciate. Um, you know, if an attack comes down the the left, the U.S. left, um, and is is going at Sauerbrunn's half of the defense, 
she's probably going to know from midfield on what's going to happen and where she needs to be to take care of the whole thing. It's going to be very undramatic. It's like, oh, she just intercepted the ball, no big deal. Um, whereas Johnston might need to make a diving interception of, of the ball. It's just, it, it's not a big thing, but it, it's, you know, half a second makes all the difference. Um, and Sauerbrunn reads the game faster than anyone. Um, and so this is what you get is watching her play is almost unremarkable and boring, but it's not because she doesn't do anything. It's because she's thinking so much so far ahead that she almost looks unchallenged a lot of times. Um, which uh, is a very difficult. It's a very difficult thing to do to make soccer look easy um, at a high, when you're playing at a high level. It's for just to look like it's not that difficult. Um, and she does that pretty much every game. Um, and she doesn't pick up. I, I think she picked up one yellow card in the entire tournament, and it was like a major surprise that she even did that um, because she usually doesn't have to commit fouls. Um, I do think. Um, Lloyd's achievement as a goal scorer in the back half of the World Cup is it's always going to overshadow anything anyone else on the team did um, because that's what people remember. People don't remember that the, up until the game against China, she was being played out of position um, and struggling with it um, because it, it was just a role that she's not set up for or she's not accustomed to, she's not going to be very good at, and she wasn't able to overcome that until... Morgan Bryan was put in uh, as another central midfielder, and Lloyd was allowed to be really almost a wandering second forward rather than uh, a central midfielder with major defensive responsibility because she's not going to take care of those responsibilities. If you give them to her, it's not going to happen, um, which is fine. She's obviously very good at this other role, um, but I, I do agree that you know with the dash, I don't think she did nearly as much as Sauerbrunn did in the NWSL, and then... On the in the World Cup, I think Sauerbrunn was was probably the best player from start to finish in the entire tournament. Yeah, um, without Sauerbrunn, it's it's arguable that Carly Lloyd wouldn't have been in a position to become the Carly Lloyd we all will remember for the rest of our lives. Um, and I'm sure that there's some some part of me that says you know getting getting those goals in the the late stage of the tournament. It means enough that she deserves some some major consideration, but well, and she's already she's already going to be recognized for from FIFA for right. But I mean, the fact that FIFA is going to do one thing or another shouldn't affect. I know, I know. But uh, you know, that's I'm sure Sauerbrunn was not really very surprised. You know, that's life as a, a center back. A lot of times is that people are going to downplay your contributions unless you're diving in and doing something dramatic. Um. But uh, the one other thing I would say with the li- this list of five is that um, I think that Crystal Dunn should be on there. Um, just because she wasn't at the World Cup, her her NWSL season was the best in the entire league. Um, yes. And with all due respect to Hope Solo, she didn't really do much at the World Cup. Um, it was actually kind of a joke that she won the Golden Gloves. Yeah, I mean, because she, like, as we talked about, she didn't have very much work to do. Um, so she wasn't really tested enough for it to be something where you'd... It's kind of unfair, you know, to be the goalkeeper on a team that just doesn't let up shots. You know, you're kind of screwed because the organ, the organizational ability you show isn't going to win you anything because ultimately you have to make some saves, and if you're just not having to make saves, you know, people aren't going to recognize you. 
um, and less it's a team achievement award, which is that that was kind of the case there. It was just like, well, there was no other outstanding goalkeeper, and the winning team was really good. So why don't we just give it? Why don't we just give it to her? Um, She's won it before. She probably deserves it again. Right, but I mean, uh, Crystal Dunn in a lot of Spirit games was a uh, was the offense, um, especially when they didn't have Diana Matheson. Um, and when she, she got caps for the U.S., she, she immediately started creating goals and assists. Yeah, um, exactly. I think she deserved to be on the list, but the fact that she wasn't on the World Cup roster meant that there was no chance they were going to put her on there, but that doesn't mean that that's a good position to take. Mark it down for next year. She will be a finalist next year. I, I would certainly hope so. Uh, I, I'm still, until I see her included on the roster, I'm still worried about roster construction with, with Jill Ellis in charge because we saw a World Cup roster that didn't really make a lot of sense. They won in spite of it. Um, and Luckily, the Olympic roster is more difficult to construct because only, there are only 18 spots. Luckily, unlike in a colleague of Jill Ellis that will remain unnamed, she is able to recognize a winning combination on the field, at least, when it works. Um, not sure. all managers sure. are so blessed. Jurgen Yinsman? I will, I will neither confirm nor deny whether his name rhymes, or if it is a he at all. Uh, anyway, before we get too far down that rabbit hole, let's turn our attention now to DC United and certain continuing series we have on blackandredunited.com, one of which is the Benny Awards. We, Since literally before any of us wrote for the site, or maybe Jason, you were around for the first iteration of this. But it wasn't it back on Martin's old blog too? Before I think Jason it might have. I, I don't know if it was on on DCUMD or not. I'm pretty sure it was. I'm pretty sure it was. It was, it was one of the things that Martin carried over. All right, so in, in that case, yes, literally before any of us wrote for Black and Red United, or before, indeed, Black and Red before there was a Black and Red United. Um, on the founder's old website, Martin's old website, there was this thing called the Benny Awards, which he had the incredible foresight to name after Ben Olsen while he was still a player on the <laughs> team. Uh, it, it's the year-end awards for for DC United, essentially, as given by uh, fans. And the first of which that's given out every year is the Richie Award, named for Richie Williams, and it is the most underrated player. He was the defensive midfielder on those great teams of the late 90s. And he is overshadowed by the likes of Marco Echeverri, Raul Diaz Arce, Jaime Moreno, John Harkes, etc., etc. And so we give, it, give out the Richie every year to the most underrated player on the team. The finalists this year are Nick DeLeon, Chris Korb, Connor Doyle, Sean Franklin, and Davey Arno. Last year it was won by Taylor Kemp. I think he could have been a nominee again this year, but he did not make the cut. So, oh. Ben, Ben, you are in charge of running the, the Benny Awards. I am. Who gets your vote for the Richie? I voted for, like I did last year, I voted for Nick DeLeon. I just think he does so many things that... Are, don't show up on highlight reels, don't show up in even really in that many different kinds of uh, soccer statistics. I mean, it shows up in uh, pass rating and things like that, but 
I think he has a, he, I mean, and the fact that he has a much different game than he did when uh, he first burst into the league, I think leads people to overlook him again, but he's quite a good player, and if DC United wants to play possession, he's a key part of that. He has the second best uh, passing rating on the team. He doesn't get dispossessed easily. He really is a good player, despite what you think of him. So I voted for Nick DeLeon. Davey was a very close second. For me, Nicky was a very close second to Sean Franklin. Uh, who, Great choice as well. As, as a fullback, managed to, Jason, as you've pointed out several times, managed to have a surprisingly high number of key passes and I think also had a very high pass completion rate in possession. Yes, he, he was, I which, think he was five, five or six, I think. Yeah, he was he was up there, which is a nice contrast yeah. to his his opposite number, Taylor Kemp, oh, who well, was Taylor. greatly improved this year, I think, uh, but whose passing game is, I guess you could say it's more ambitious. He His game is a lot more predicated on crosses um, and clearances than it is on, on possession soccer. And Sean Franklin is a nice counterpoint to that, where he's able to find somebody and, and even find somebody in a position to take a shot. It's not a great shot a lot of the time, but it, he's good at finding the open man. Jason, who's the most underrated player on DC United for you? Uh, well, he's come up twice already, so I'm going to go with Davey Arnold, who really, it became obvious in his absence just how important he was. Yeah. Um, obviously, United didn't have a like-for-like player to plug in. It wasn't like we had the slightly lesser version of Davey Arnold stepping in. Marcus Halsty plays a different sort of game. Um, but I think people tend to forget that a lot of times Arnold is the player that look, that look to break things open a little bit in the midfield. Um, not so much switching the point of attack side to side like Halsey does, but uh, our node would look over the top to try and um, give the team some vertical space. Uh, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't, but that look wasn't there very much. Um, the balance in the midfield once he once he went down with the concussion really really suffered. Um, it took a while for Kitchen and Halsey to get that get to a serviceable level, but in a four four two you you can't serviceable isn't good enough to play that formation and really succeed because especially in the East where every good team is playing 4-3-3 or 4-2-3-1, you really need to be able to play at an excellent level with a two-man central midfield to get away with it. Um, And I think any time you look at a player who, who misses out for whatever reason and you say, oh, wow, things are so much different without this guy, it kind of drives home the point that he's not someone that's going to get talked about a lot. Um, we've talked about in each each of the last off-seasons, talked about trying to replace him and up, upgrade him. And I, I do stand by that, that United needs to upgrade at that position to take the next step. But that doesn't mean that um, Arnold has, has gotten his, his share of credit. I think he's been a little underrated for a while now. And, um, Franklin Franklin is a tempting choice, but I think I've got to go with Davey Arnaud instead. Arnaud was the, the first piece of the rebuild that, that happened after 2013. They acquired him in a trade, I think, for an international slot or two with Montreal, and he was the first piece. And, and I agree, ever since that day, he has been underrated. Since that, that trade was reported, there was 
there was some backlash. There were some people who who didn't like that, but he has been as important a piece as any for DC United over the last two seasons. And and I agree, he has been underrated by a lot of people. Um, and I'm glad we chose three different choices without any planning beforehand. Good job, guys. Good radio. Good job. Good effort. And we're gonna we're we're gonna punch the gas a little bit and power through one round of of cake or death with uh, five names this death. week. Okay, moving on. Uh, cake or death, of course, is the the segment, and it's a feature on Black and Red United we've been doing for several years now as well, where we go through player by player at the end of the season to judge who we want back for next year, who we would give cake to, and who we should send packing uh, for for other opportunities, and that would be death, uh, which sounds much worse than packing for other opportunities. Ben, first up is Chris Korb. Fullback, ended the season injured, will probably not be healthy to start 2016, but has been a capable backup and spot starter when necessary. Cake or death for Chris Korb? Uh, he's pretty cheap. Cake. He, yeah, he's fine. He's. I, I don't really want him to be a starter. Uh, like him and Taylor Kemp both, I don't want either of them to be a starter. So, But he's fine as a backup. He doesn't make that much money. Cake. Jason? Uh, I'm going to have to go with Goat. Um, you know, you really need good, reliable fullback depth. Um, Core probably shouldn't be a starter for DC United, but uh, he's an excellent uh, player to be your third fullback. Um, and, it, and it makes things easier on game days, too, to have somebody that can play on either side. You don't have to carry someone that can cover the right and someone that can cover the left. You just carry him, and you're covered on both sides. I agree with everything Jason said except for the word he chose, uh, which should have been cake. Instead, he chose some nonsense word that I don't understand. Next up on the list, Colin Martin. Easy cake for me. Jason, what do you say about the homegrown attacking midfielder who spent basically this entire year on the shelf? Uh, I I think he's going to get more time this coming season. Um, I think Olsen really wants to use him, uh, it's, I, I wrote about this on the site, that it's a certain, there's a certain narrative that he has no interest in playing his young players, and it's not always true, or even 50% of the time true. Um, this year, Martin just wasn't available for most of the time. It had nothing to do with whether the team would use him or not, and in fact, he made the bench in the playoffs, which uh, is an indicator of an interest, the interest level in playing him being more than it maybe is uh, the narrative. Um, I think this one's easy. I think uh, it's got to be Goat because we're talking about a homegrown player, a playmaker, someone who can expand DC United's play, and I think we'd all like to see more attacking play and more more attack-minded uh, play, not just more of it but better quality. Um, and he's a smart young player, so I don't see how anyone could want to get rid of him. Very good. Very good. Like I said, cake. Cake is the word, guys. Luke Mishu is next. Uh, undrafted free agent this year. Came in with awesome hair and a do-rag and ended up with merely great hair at the end of the year. Um, more importantly, contributed to the team uh, playing fullback during the Champions League. And uh, I think he played an Open Cup. He played, in every, he played in every competition DC United was in this year except MLS Cup playoffs. But every he played in... Regular season in Open Cup in CCL, 
he, he did it all. All right, Ben, what do you say, cake or death? I say life. I, I'm not going to throw him down the river. I'm going to give You're him life. You're going all the way back. You're going way back to river or life. Wow. Yes, yes. The original version, before I even turned it into cake or death. You're just, okay. Jason, what say you? Uh, I, I don't know that um, it would be a big deal if, if Mishu were, were let go or if United drafted somebody because at drafting in 13th, they're just going to be taking best available. Um, sure. If the best available player is a fullback, then Mishu probably has to win his spot on the roster ahead of a first-round draft pick, which last year he was undrafted, as we mentioned, so um, that would be a difficult fight for him. But... I wouldn't, uh, unless there were already a player under contract that was better, uh, I wouldn't be looking to get rid of him. Um, I wouldn't cut him and say, let's fill this spot down the road. I would say, you know, go provided um, no one else better comes along, um, provided the draft doesn't hand United, or doesn't force United to take a fullback because there are a few good college fullbacks out there. Maybe at 13 that's the best player, then so be it. At, at which point it becomes five, obviously. So I think Mishu's option has already been exercised for next year. So he it sounds like he's going to be on the team unless he's released. Um, but he's not going to have to trial for his spot again right. next year. It sounds like he's going to be there. And you're right, DC United does draft for the best available. Uh, and if that means there's a fifth fullback, then so be it. Uh, well, but, with, with Forbes' uh, fitness level, um, you can start the season and then there's a uh, roster guarantee date down the road um, that isn't at the start of the year. I think it's at the beginning of June or something like that. Um, so there's the option of putting Corb on the injured reserve and having that open roster spot. It doesn't open cap space, but it opens a roster spot. Um, and you say, okay, you know, basically these guys are fighting for one roster spot, and we'll give them actual training sessions during the real season, not just during preseason, to win the job. Um, the one thing I will say is that maybe Olsen needs to be a little more willing to play uh, Mishu and Jalen Robinson, both of his second-choice fullbacks, because they're never going to get that much better if they just never play. Um, and playing an Open Cup game and then going like a month and a half until the Champions League, you're not really going to improve that quickly. Um, so there has to be a moment where he does get some starts. I think... Was he on the field for the win in Chicago, the the Connor Doyle Golazo game? I think he was subbed off in the seven. No, yeah, he played ninety that game. He played ninety that game. It was yeah, one that of the two games. Right. If you if you're a backup on the team, you get to play this game because everyone's being rotated because the schedule is designed to destroy human beings. His only, as I wrote, I know this only because I wrote his season review. Uh, his only other start was he played seventy two minutes in midfield in the 3-1 loss to the Portland Timbers. 3-1. They lost the game 1-0. Yeah. 1-0, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that with the other Chicago game? Not the... Yeah. That, was another, that game was another midweek. Uh, that was the play on turf in New England, and then three days, three days later, play on turf in Portland, which, uh, like I said, attempting yeah. to just beings. Yeah. Kofi Opari is next on the list. He spent most of the year as DC United's third center back in a two-center back system. Filled in admirably, I think, for both Boswell and Steve Birnbaum on occasion, even 
uh, relegating Birnbaum to the bench for a short spell here and there. Or to right back. Uh, or, or to right back, that's right. I think this one is easy. I think it'll be unanimous cake all around. Any objections? Life. Did you say life or wife? Life. Okay, because at this point you just started getting confusing even to me. Um, I'm just already confusing Fox paradigm. Um, anyway, we all uh, agree that Kofi Opari should be around next year, even if you guys are being stubborn and difficult and refusing to go along with the nomenclature. Last up on the list is a guy who's already gone from DC United's roster, and it makes a lot of us sad. If you want to see really funny, really sad gifts, go to the Cake or Death post on Chris Pontius. Uh, the first four comments, at least as of right now, it might be more by the time you read this, are all um, hilarious and sad. Um, Jason, you wrote the post on Pontius. What do you make of his season, and and should DC United have kept him around? Uh, I think the fact that they've replaced him um, so quickly and with someone that makes perfect sense for what they got out of Pontius before, um, I think it's sadly justifiable that they made the move because you can't have a player making the money that he does and have the risk fitness wise that's involved. Um, if you're, especially if you're DC United, if you're uh, Seattle or LA and you've got three big time superstars that can cover the offense while, you know, the other, the fourth guy in your attack uh, happens to be injured and gets replaced by somebody else uh, off the bench you can get away with it. DC United isn't in a position where they have any attacker that can carry so much of the offense that they'll still be good if it just is one or two players. Um, they need both wide midfielders producing something tangible. So um, I understand completely why they would want to move on. Uh, the fact that they lined up a replacement so quickly and at half the price was very smart. Um it is sad, though, that it comes to that, because if we're talking about a reliably fit Chris Pontius, then there's no way you get rid of him. Um, everyone remembers in 2012 that he was pretty much unplayable for other teams. Um, he was he was the the nightmare um, that kind of made DC United's attack work, because everyone else, you could kind of see where they were coming from, and here's a goal-scoring winger who likes to cut inside from the left, but also sometimes lines up as a forward, sometimes he's uh, on the right side. He even played a couple games as a central player in that that, that season. So um, a real difficult player to deal with, but the injuries over the years, uh, it just makes it impossible at that, that price point. And the fact that Philly was willing to pay it um, is good for Pontius. Um, and if they can keep him healthy, it'll be great for the union because they've got such a history of making bad moves that any any move they make that is a big, significant investment that pans out, um, is obviously going to be celebrated up there, but um, I do think it's kind of sad that he has to play in their just terrible jerseys um, that are just horrible. Um, their jerseys are their jerseys are so bad. They have such a good idea for their jerseys, basically being a navy and gold Ajax template, and they just find new ways to ruin it every year. She, it's that shade of that looks sort of like mud. Um, 
it's just not. It's 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 a bad. I saw a picture recently from the Union's first game. It was their first team photo back when they also wore the gold shorts that went with or the the mud shorts. Um, and it just it just made it so much worse. It just drove it home how bad their uniforms look. But anyway, um, I think this is a situation where I reluctantly have to say uh, Fox just because the price point is just it's too much risk for the price you have to pay. Yeah, I can't say death because I I have too much love in my heart for Chris Pontius, but I also can't give him cake this year. Voting no on the poll on the site was it actually caused me physical pain to do so, but I felt like it was what I had to do as because voting integrity on internet polls about soccer is really the most important thing, and if it causes you physical pain, that's just the pace, price you pay for democracy. Ben, Chris Pontius, cake or death? I mean, it's basically what you all said. It, like, he was the Chris Pontius's jersey was the first jersey I ever bought for DC United, but and I the first time I wore it was the game he broke his leg in 2011, so that was great. Ben's but a um, yeah, but um, yeah, I, I I have to give him River. It's just too much money, and I mean they paid him down with Tam this year apparently, so who knows how much money he actually was? But it's over four hundred thousand, and that's just too much. So River. And on that sad note, we get to open up the Twitter box to close the show. Uh, first tweet comes from Daryl, uh, our friend down at the Total Soccer Show in Richmond. Uh, it's it's a great little podcast. If you haven't listened to it, go check it out. It's, I think, on any major podcast podcatcher you, you could find. Uh, they are at Total Soccer Show on Twitter. They ask us, at filibuster DCU, what's the most you would be happy for DC United to pay Kitchen in 2016? How high is too high? Jason, you mentioned that Tam is probably going to be involved if DC United signs Perry Kitchen next year. Given that, does I'll change the question a little bit? Does the integration of Tam, does the injection of Tam, make you happier with a higher number? For Perry Kitchen, uh, I mean happier. I don't know about happier because uh, ultimately I, I'm willing to overpay a little bit because Kitchens. We're, we're not competing with um, teams with MLS resources. We're competing with teams that are willing to pay more than an MLS team would pay Kitchen. So we're going to have to overpay if we want to keep him in in black and red. Um, so I, I think uh, I would be more comfortable with the fact that we'll be using TAM rather than just having to use a designated player. And then, um, you know, that's the, you, know, you get into, is ownership going to spend that money? The signs point to no um, in this case. Um, or they would say, okay, yeah, we're willing to make you a designated player, but it would be in a Spindola-style contract where you're just barely over the designated player threshold, which probably isn't enough money to keep him. Um Kitchen has a ton of leverage right now, and United's going to have to pay not just what he's worth, but a little more because of that leverage. Because there are teams in Europe, I, people might not know, but teams in Europe can pay your um, your housing. They can cover your apartment. Um, they can provide a car. If you don't, you, you get there and you don't bring your car. Perry Kitchen doesn't need a car. He's got a Lambo lease for next year, man. 
But can, does he does he have the money to to ship it to uh, Norway or, no. or Sweden? No, he um, doesn't. He could just wait till he gets there and then start the lease there. Maybe I, I don't, don't know. Work <laughs> is that. Um, there are things off the field that MLS teams don't do that, or, or that don't often do that these teams can do. Um, so United's going to have to over. I think people need to be prepared to hear about this being something where Kitchen makes maybe more than we thought. Um, he might even get up towards Osvaldo Alonso, who makes eight hundred thousand. Um, and I think I'd be okay. I'd be comfortable with that because sometimes you do have to overpay. Um, in MLS to get what you need. Um, we saw it after the 2013 season where United probably took Arnaud and Boswell and Franklin for a little more money than was ideal, but it was because they were in a position where they had to find players that were definitely going to be competent, reliable starters on a good team. Um, they were in a position where they had to do that, and I think that's a position they're in again because they haven't been they hadn't been able to find Kitchen in 2014, which put them in a year a situation where he's in a contract year. Um, and apparently those negotiations have continued on. Um, the fact that it's now, we're recording on December 14th, and we still haven't heard one way or another, um, there's always a chance that they put up the money. Uh, but I guess to, to answer the question directly, I guess Alonso's contract of 800000 is probably the maximum I'd be willing to go. Um especially in a world where Seattle allegedly is shopping Alonso, um, which would mean that if Kitchen left, United would have to find a replacement, and you know maybe they end up trading for Alonso. It would be an expensive trade. Um, it would be a difficult trade because of the injuries Alonso's had in the last couple of years, but the point is, financially, you're, you're paying about the same amount of money. For Alonso's a better player, but he's also an older player, so all in all, I think that's where the the ceiling of this caps out. I don't think he's going to get a million bucks. So if some club comes in and says, hey, we'll pay you a million dollars, he's probably going to go. Um, but, you know, it depends on what Bundesliga club we're talking about because Bundesliga clubs tend to be very responsible financially. They're not just throwing money at a problem and then going, moving on. Um, so it's not he's not necessarily just going to get a slew of seven-figure offers just because he's trained with what... Um, Freiburg and Frankfurt, I think, are the teams he's trained with before. Um, so the fact that those teams know him, let's say that they're interested, um, they're not going to throw a million bucks at him, but they might be able to get to 800000 more a little more easily than DC it does. We have a few other questions, but we're going to skip all of them but one this week uh, for time. This one comes from John, who is at ZZ, Average Geek ZZ. Uh, on Twitter, he asks us at filibuster DCU. How can DCU market to all the fans that show up for U.S. Men's National Team and European preseason friendlies? Basically, how can DC United capture the general soccer fan uh, in this area, of which there are many. I work with several um, who are soccer fans, but but haven't adopted DC United or MLS at this point. How can DC United attract them, and and I have to assume that he is that that John who asked this question is motivated by the the change in the logo, which I think is part of DC United's strategy to go after those fans for for better or worse. DC United's market research apparently, reportedly, has 
had shown that the old logo, uh, the badge, just wasn't connecting with people who weren't fans of DC United already, even if they were diehard soccer people. It just wasn't working. It was too militaristic or or something. And so they got rid of the red background. They made the made everything a little bit more modern. And here we are. So I think the the logo refresh was a part of that. I think another part is is finding ways to get them to try DC United. Just get them in the door, and then let the the product on the field, and as importantly, the product in the stands, do the sell job for them. I think that's that's why the team has been putting so much, you know, working with Living Social so much over the years to try to get people in the door. And I, I think they may have gotten some season ticket holders out of that, but they need a lot more season ticket holders. That's where their focus is going forward. So I guess we'll see if there are more Living Social and whatever deals uh, in the future, but... Ben, what do you think? How can how can DC United get, you know, not necessarily Euro snobs by any means, but how can they get fans of the U.S. national team and of European soccer who come out to games when it's a European club or the national team, but but won't deign to come to MLS at this point? I mean, I think it's similar to what you just said. I think it's about game day experience and just you have to get them in the door first because you're not going to turn them into season ticket holders. And as Tom Hunt said at the uh, event, they, they need to build up, rebuild their season ticket holder base before the launch of the new stadium. And so getting people in the door first is what they have to do to turn those people into season ticket holders. And so that's why you see a lot of those promotions that you saw last year, you saw the year before, and you're probably going to see again next year. And I know it annoys some season ticket holders. It They feel like it devalues their tickets, but they're trying to rebuild a base of new season ticket holders that they haven't had in four, six, eight years. Ever. But yeah. And so the only way to start is to get them to come to games in the first place and then turn them into season ticket holders after that. And I am somewhat encouraged because I've been hearing anecdotally a number of stories of people who are first and second year season ticket holders who have gotten captured and have become season t- ticket holders because of those sorts of things and because of their more general uh, love of soccer. So I think they're hitting on the right track. Just they need to be, hopefully they're able to capture that and turn that into a larger season ticket holder base uh, as Jasper uh, underscores my point uh, going forward. Jasper clearly agrees with you. He's no longer just a percussionist this week. Yeah. Um, I think I think that's right. I think the the experience, delivering an experience, and making people feel like they're a part of something. I know when I got my first season tickets uh, years and years ago, it was in the supporters groups, and then eventually I moved out of them over to the quiet side and got my wife involved. And we're going to have to buy a season ticket for our kid in the next couple years. So I think that is a part of it because we felt like we were part of something or I felt like I was part of something and I had friends there and, and it's a community as much as anything else. And I think, 
I don't know the exact way that the front office should market that concept, but I think that is where they need to go. That is the place where emotional place where, where season ticket holders are born. Yeah, I, I think you have to inspire a sense of ownership in fans. You have to get people to realize that this is yours um, in a way that your top six English team isn't going to ever be yours until you move to England. Um, there's no way... And not even then. And not even then. Right. Um, and, there's, there's, you know, I'm then I'm not at all disrespecting people's long-standing or even new um, allegiances in in England or to Barcelona or Real Madrid, but those teams aren't ever going to be truly yours. This is something that can be yours, um, that you can know RFK. You know, to go to a game is a whole different thing from watching it on TV. Um, you get a sense of exactly what the fans are, are thinking and feeling because you hear them. Um, you hear them talking on the metro or in the parking lot or walking through the tunnel towards the stadium. Um, you you get a feel for all these things that you can never feel through a TV. And, you know, uh, announcers, good and bad, will tell you, oh, the atmosphere is like this or it's like that. Um, but how many times, if you go on Twitter, have you seen people saying, like, well, that's kind of a funny thing to hear because the atmosphere in the stands is actually X rather than what they're saying on TV. Um, you'll hear announcers say, oh, they've silenced fans, but then you can clearly hear fans in the background making a lot of noise. Um, if you're at the game, you get to hear exactly what that noise relates to. Um, you get to develop a personal relationship. Even if it's not person-to-person, it's still um, a heightened relationship with players on the team by seeing them before games and seeing the goal celebration that you might not have seen because MLS broadcasts often cut away from them for reasons unknown. Um, you get to see after the game the players come over to applaud. Sometimes you get to see a situation where not enough players come over to applaud in a loss on the road. And um, if you're one of those fans that traveled, this is something else you get to do. You know, if going to RFK inspires a sense of ownership, um, going on the road to support United is like it's like that. It's the same level of step up from going to a home game. Um, and so sometimes you're going to be irritated with what you've seen. Um, on that level, but that's that's part of it too, and that's something that um, watching the Premier League on on Saturday morning, it's always going to be from a distance and from a remove that having something that's immediate like that, um, going to your local MLS team or or NASL or USL or or whatever is near you, um, being there in the stands, it really is a whole different world, and it it's something that becomes yours, and I think that's something that the team needs to remind people of and maybe make a little more clear, make it about, you know, being really a part of something rather than just watching it from afar and enjoying it. Um, because there's no there's no substitute for it. There's no substitute for being able to go to the game, take the, you know, take the train or stand in lot eight with all your with a bunch of like minded people waiting for the game. Um, it, you really can't substitute for that. Yeah, I think the trick is getting people in the door, which is if you if you take that as the strategy, it explains a lot of what DC United has been doing over the last few years. I think, at least I hope, that their, their more general marketing budget um, for traditional avenues is going to go up in the future, um, and we see more of a presence and maybe start to feel more of a buzz around the team here in town, but even if that doesn't happen, the the 
the idea is always to get people in the door and let those of us in the stadium basically do some of the work for them. And I think that that's true for every team in MLS. The in-stadium atmosphere and the game experience is the greatest salesman, the greatest asset they have as far as bringing new people in. You just have to get them to see it. And then if they get it, they get it. And if they don't, then they probably never will. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Find us at blackandredunited.com. We are on Twitter at filibusterdcu at Black and Red U for the website. Send your emails to filibusterpodcast.com or filibusterpodcast at gmail.com. We do read every email even if we don't respond to them. Uh, we accept, as always, love letters. We accept hate mail and we accept advertising inquiries. Find us on iTunes. Find us on Stitcher. We are on SoundCloud. Mostly, though, tell a friend about the podcast. Just like the in-stadium atmosphere is the greatest sales uh, force MLS has, you know what, I can't even finish that sentence because I cannot say with a straight face that listening to this podcast is a good experience. But if you like it, tell a friend about it. We'll talk to you real soon. For Jason and Ben, I'm Adam. Say goodbye, Jason. Goodbye, Jason.